0: So please don't miss out on that. But I want to do something very quickly. Uh, April, can I tinker with the keyboard? Would that be? Okay. Um, I'm going to do this without tripping and falling. This wasn't much a better way to go. Aren't you glad you came this morning? Music is a very powerful thing. And Music can teach us a lot of things, and I am not good at the keyboard, but I want to play some notes. Aren't those just fascinating? They're four C's, and after a while that's really going to get irritating. They're great notes, but they're basically the same note, just different pitches. And it's great and it's fine, but it's it's not quite the same as a chord. You get a major chord and that sounds nicer. And it's nicer because it's not just all C's. You've got a C, a E, you've got a G, a C, and all the notes in between. But a problem happens with music. If you're playing in a band, and let's say the band is going to end on a C major chord, and all of a sudden you get that one person who doesn't quite get their note, and you get that action going. It kind of sounds like you're in an old horror movie or something. There's a a dissonance there, there's a disconnect. And I think this teaches us a lot about, I'm going to swing this way, see if I can save time. I think this teaches us a lot about the issue of unity (laughs) what is unity A, a dictionary definition of unity is simply a combination or ordering of parts in a literary or artistic production that constitutes a whole or promotes an undivided total effect basically what i just did there we have all of these different notes but all of them are working together. They're different notes, but they're working together for a common end. And this is the definition that we have. Here's another great example of unity. If my clicker would work. There we go. That's unity, right there. It could be drunken unity, but it's unity. Because in this little snapshot of all of these people at a Steelers game, all of the terrible towels waving, I'm guessing that if they all knew each other in real life, not everybody in this picture would get along. Not every person in this picture would see eye to eye. Not every person in this picture votes the same way on election day. Now, I happen to find this random picture, and looking through it, I do notice that there's a unity of color except for two people three people but all of these people with so many differences have one thing in common and for three hours on a Sunday afternoon that's the only thing that matters if you'll notice none of them are arguing or fighting if you'll notice some of them have the black jerseys some of them have the white jerseys I think the black jerseys are sharper But I have no problem if you're at Heinz Field and you're wearing a white jersey because it's a Steelers jersey. I do have a problem if you show up in a Browns jersey or a Ravens jersey. That I'm not comfortable with. But you think about all of the potential reasons that these people should not get along, why these people should argue and fight, and for three hours on a Sunday, none of that matters. Because there's only one thing that matters because they are a combination or an ordering of parts, in this sense, a sports production that constitutes a whole or promotes an undivided total effect. They are there to root for their team, and nothing else matters for those three hours. And so these same people who could probably fight and argue about a lot of stuff are now, as strangers, hugging, high-fiving, laughing together, maybe weeping together as you're playing a playoff game against the Browns and a football gets snapped into the Allegheny River and things spin out of control from there. Sorry, I'm still kind of therapy from that. D.L. Moody. He says, I have never yet known the Spirit of God to work where the Lord's people were divided. I have never yet known the Spirit of God to work where the Lord's people were divided. And we see unity and division as a significant theme of the New Testament. In fact, in Ephesians chapter four, our main passage for this morning, the Apostle Paul addresses the Ephesian believers. In chapter four, starting at verse one, he says, "I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, gentleness with patience." But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now again, several weeks ago, as we looked at spiritual gifts, we looked at the fivefold ministry, and this is part of that passage, that as Paul talks about the fivefold ministry and all of these different spiritual gifts, he makes sure to begin that discussion by saying, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Because he recognizes that even in the midst of serving the Lord, even in the midst of utilizing spiritual gifts, that as believers we have the possibility, the potential, to not be united in the exercising of those gifts. But notice the language that he uses here. We make great effort, as we did several weeks ago, when we looked at the fruit of the Spirit, to notice that it's the fruit of... In other words, it's not something that we produce in our efforts. It's something that the Holy Spirit produces. And look what we find here in Ephesians 4, verse 3. It's the unity of the Spirit. That the unity among believers in Christ is something that is accomplished by the working of the Holy Spirit, not our own efforts. And that's why Paul doesn't admonish them to create the unity of the Spirit but to maintain what the Holy Spirit has deposited in their hearts already. And This is what Jesus prayed. In John chapter 17, in that high priestly prayer, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Notice what Jesus is praying. In his prayer, just before he goes to the cross, Jesus prays not only for the unity of all Christians throughout all time, but notice specifically what he's asking for. He's saying, Father, you and I are one. You and I are united. And I pray that everybody who believes in me throughout the remainder of history would be One, Father, just like you and I are one. I don't even get how that oneness works among the Trinity. But Jesus says, I want my people to be just as united, just as one, as the members of the Trinity are one. This is what Jesus prays the night before he's crucified. That we would be one. That we would be united and have the same kind of oneness that is found in the Trinity. And going back to Ephesians 4, where Paul says, be eager to maintain. Be eager. Literally exert oneself. Make haste to do something. Strive after it. In other words, make this a fundamental priority of your life. To exert yourself to be quick to take action, to strive after the unity of the Spirit, to maintain it, literally to attend carefully to something, to take care of, to guard it, to hold it firmly. And I think I've shared this before, when I was in seminary, the seminary had one of the, uh, the, I won't say biggest, because none of them are really big, but one of the biggest archaeology museums of any seminary. And one of our old testament classes they took us in to the the museum for one of our classes and the director of the museum takes this pot and begins passing this pot around and so we're, we're looking at this pot and he says this pot dates back to the time of moses and i freeze why did you give this to me why did you trust my big clumsy hands with this pot this is rare and valuable. Why in the world did you give this to me? And so I begin now to hold this so carefully. And as I pass it off to the next student, there's like this very careful transition. Like, you got it? Okay, you got it. I'm, I'm going to let go. You got it. You're good. And that's the same sense that Paul's saying, maintain the unity of the Spirit. Guard it. Care for it. Protect it. And that word unity, it means A oneness. But notice how he says in there, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. A bond is a band or a ligament that holds things together. I love how Cory Ten Boom put it. She said, be united with other Christians. A wall with loose bricks is not good. The bricks must be cemented together. That bond of peace is the cement that holds the bricks together. Have you ever walked over a bridge made out of bricks and the bricks weren't very secure together? It's a very unsettling feeling. The cement needs to be strong. The bond needs to be strong between those bricks. So what is this bond of peace? The word peace there means a state of tranquility, exemption from rage, security, safety, harmony. Paul says Keep that going. That's what the Holy Spirit naturally does in us. Creates this unity. And the fact that Paul is urging the Ephesian Christians, keep that going, maintain that, means that in our selfish, sinful ways, our propensity is to fight against that unity rather than fight for that unity. It's the unity of the Spirit. Because here's the thing. The same Holy Spirit that was in Jesus lives in me. And the same Holy Spirit that lives in Jesus that lives in me lives in you, lives in you, lives in you, lives in each and every one of us as followers of Jesus. We have the same Holy Spirit in us. And when you're around another Christian, the Holy Spirit in you should connect with the Holy Spirit in that other person. Until we get in the way and find some reason that we shouldn't be connected? Have you ever randomly met somebody and found out that they were a Jesus follower? Isn't there automatically that, oh, hey, we're siblings. There's that instant connection. There's a, a story, a joke that's used about two guys who are at the Golden Gate Bridge, and they meet each other, and one happens... As they're looking out over the view says well what a beautiful creation god has given us and the second man says oh are you a christian and the first man says well yes i am and the second man says so am i oh so good to see you brother and they they embrace in christian love and the first christian says are, are you A Bible based Christian and the second man says yes I am and they just fall even more in love with each other and they're getting ready to be Facebook friends and have each other's families over for holidays and they go through oh do you read the the King James Bible I do too and all of these things and suddenly the one gets down and says were you are you a five-point Calvinist and the other says no I'm not and so he shoves them off the bridge We take the unity of the Spirit, and then we put all of these other tags on there. Say, we're united in Christ so long as we're exactly the same. No, that's playing a bunch of C notes. It sounds okay, but it gets a little grating after a while. Unity is not sameness. It's not uniformity. Unity is a chord where there are C notes and D notes. There's E's and G's, and you don't have the G-sharps in there. Being united as brothers and sisters in Christ doesn't mean that we always agree. It doesn't mean that we're always the same. But it means that our uniqueness works together for something bigger than either one of us individually. Tom Rayner, who's uh, one of the most respected church researchers, has come up with a, an extensive list of things that break unity in churches across America. And I'm not going to go through all of them, but just some of the key ones that he points out in his research that he's found. The first one is gossip. And he says, Church members talk to one another instead of talking to one another. In our Western Pennsylvania district manual, there, there's a section in there that says, for local churches, if Two members of a church don't get along they should follow Matthew 18 and just talk to each other about it and if that doesn't work talk to somebody else to try to be an intermediary but typically as Christians in America we want to talk to everybody but the one who upset us and Tom Rainer says this is one of the big things that will destroy unity in a church the second thing he found is self-serving church members He says, some church members insist on getting their way for everything, from worship style to the order of the worship service and anything in between. When we're called together, it's not the C note saying, I must have my way, I must be dominant. And the G note saying, I must have my way, I must be dominant. But it's all of the notes working together in unity. Putting the chord ahead of the individual parts. And as church members, putting the kingdom of God as our primary focus and agenda, saying, we are here collectively to glorify Jesus. It's not about what I want. It's not about what I prefer. It's about what's going to glorify Jesus and advance his kingdom in this world. A.B. Simpson, the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance, said, the true secret of union is for both to look upon God. And in the act of looking past themselves to him, They are unconsciously united. The third thing that Tom Rayner found is a lack of prayer. He says, a church that does not pray together is likely to fragment into special interest groups. A church that commits itself to praying together puts the presence of God first above all. Number four. Number four fear of confrontation he says too many church members would rather sweep problems under the rug than deal with them don't we do that with family too we just kind of pretend if we ignore it it'll go away I tend to take that with health if I've got an ache or something is wrong my thought is if I ignore it it'll just go away and guess what happens it doesn't go away it gets worse In the family when there's problems in the family if you just ignore the problem it doesn't magically go away you might pretend like it goes away but you can cut the tension with a knife and in churches the problems don't go away they just fester that's why you see so often in churches everybody just sweeps problems under the rug and it festers and then all of a sudden, we talk about let's replace the padding on the pews. And there's a knockdown, drag out fight. It has nothing to do with the pews, it's this festering, infected wound that's been ignored for years. Number five, adopting the hypercritical spirit of culture. It's so easy to be hypercritical. It's easy to be hypercritical of our culture and find fault with all of these different things going on in the world around us. But guess what tends to happen if we are hypercritical of the culture and the world around us? Do you think that we live with this very positive mentality in this part of life, but a hypercritical mentality in this part of life? The the hypercritical tends to bleed. And all of a sudden, we're no longer hypercritical of Hollywood. We're no longer hypercritical of the music industry. We're no longer just hypercritical of politicians. We're hypercritical of each other. And we begin to watch each other just waiting for a slip-up so that we can point it out, just like we do with every other facet of life. Number six, he says, church is known more for what they are against rather than what they're for. He says, this negativity becomes pervasive in the congregation and destroys church unity. Do people know what Christians are for? The easy answer is say, well, of course. But I've been convinced in recent years that that's not the case. We're known by what we're against because we are quick to let people know what we're against. It hit me years ago when I was with a, a group that was doing street ministry in the Northeast Ohio area. And one day I sat back. We went every, every week, we had a team that went down to this Friday night concert series near Akron. And we would just set up, and there would be people preaching on a little box and handing out gospel literature. And I sat back for a few minutes and observed because I, I was doing all the same things and was spearheading that effort. And so it wasn't like, oh, they're, they're doing it wrong. I I kickstarted some of this. And I watched people walk past. And I realized that people were walking past us, and all they heard in the time it took them to walk past us was all the things we defined as being sin. That it was possible to listen to a member of the team I was a part of for 10 minutes, and only hear us talk about sin, and never once talk about Jesus, unless you happen to find that 30-second window when we actually turned our little sermon to Jesus. People knew what we were against, but only a very few actually got to hear what we were for. And as churches, especially as our culture divides more and more, we have to be careful that we don't become churches that identify ourselves by what we're against, but rather by what we're for. And the answer to that is really simple. We're for Jesus. And we're for the things that Jesus is for. But you know, it takes a whole different mentality. See, when... When the focus of my our street ministry and my street ministry was we're sinful and God is against sin, I began to see the people, the random people on the streets kind of as the enemy almost. When I began to realize that, okay, yeah, we're sinners, but that's why Jesus came because God is for us, because God so loved the world that he didn't come to yell and say we're sinners, but he came and sent his son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You begin to see people not as enemies but as objects of the love of God. Is it possible that in being so caught up in what we're against that we can even define our in-house relationships by what we're against rather than being for one another? Number 7. Fear of losing members. Rayner points out that so often churches are afraid to lose anybody, and so that dictates everything they do, and Jesus ceases to be the head of the church, and basically a few members begin to hold the church hostage, and it creates a division within the church. Number eight, failure to be evangelistic. He writes, I have never known a church member who is both evangelistic and divisive. As a gathering of believers, especially as a gathering believers under this umbrella of the Christian Missionary Alliance, a core part of our DNA is what we find in our missions conference theme, all of Jesus for all the world. That's why we're here. We're not here just to preserve our preferences or our traditions. We are here to take all of Jesus to all the world. That is the cord that we're all trying to be a part of, taking all of Jesus to the ends of the world. And number nine, uh, combine two of the ones that he had listed into one, but church bullies or power groups. He says, some church members seek power in a church they can't get elsewhere. They are devious and dangerous what happens is the church becomes driven by trying to appease the bully rather than being spirit-empowered and spirit-directed. I don't mean for us to kind of end on this negative portrait of what the church can be, but rather as a lesson for us to say, if we want to stay away from those nine characteristics... We need to go back to Paul's admonition in Ephesians 4 and be eager to maintain, to protect the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. To think of ourselves in terms of sitting in Heinz Field saying, You you opted to wear a white jersey. I think they're kind of bland. I prefer the, the black jerseys, but it's a Steelers jersey. So I don't care. Let's cheer. Together. Unity doesn't mean that we're all the same. Even as you look at scripture, one of the beautiful things about scripture, there's 66 different books in this one book. It's a collection of shorter books written by all of these different authors over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. There's one message in this book. And we know that Scripture is God-breathed. We know that the Holy Spirit inspired the writers. But even as you study the individual books within this book, you find that God still used the personality of the writers. Paul's writing is very different from John's writing. Their use of the Greek, their grammar, their sentence structures, all of these things, we can see their personalities come out in their writing. And I love that. Because it means that God takes the the whole spectrum of who we are all of our quirks all of our personalities all the things that make us different and unique and wonderful just like all the things that make a c note different from a g note but if they're together as part of a chord it sounds beautiful if you ever listen to a piece of music and and the harmonies are done so beautifully It just gives you chills That's what God wants His people to be like. This great symphony with harmony and chords that that just brings chills to you as you hear its beauty. I mean, look at the picture that we have in Revelation. This great missions passage that we often (coughs) refer to, excuse me. But as John looks across heaven, he sees people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. We don't even look the same in heaven. Being united doesn't mean we're all the same. It means that our differences all work together for the beauty of God's kingdom and the glory of Jesus. But Paul admonishes these Ephesian believers to say, make sure that is always the case. Because it's very easy to get focused on the things that are different about us and allow those things to begin to drive wedges between us. May that never be so. Let's pray. Jesus, when you prayed on that night, praying for the unity of your followers,